Atop a bluff along the shore of the Red River in Robertson County, Tennessee, lies a cave. A cave with a bit of a reputation. It's a cave that the local children are particularly fond of exploring. Roomy enough for a cool picnic away from the beating southern sun, and the stream exiting the cave is an excellent fishing spot. But the true cause of this cave's reputation is something completely different. It also has a tremendous propensity for the strange. One day, a group of local boys were exploring the cave. They made their way into the dark, damp, hallway-like entrance, pebbles crunching beneath their feet as the light from the outside began to disappear and transition to the dim light emanating from their candles. A ways into the cave, the passageway opened up into a large room of sorts, with a high ceiling covered in stalactites and a second floor connected by a tiny passageway whose access required crawling through a narrow tunnel. In fact, there were a number of these narrow tunnels throughout the halls of the cave, and some were little more than a crack in the rock that only the bravest of the boys dared try to squeeze through. On this particular day, one of the boys decided to explore one of these narrow crevices. He worked his way through the entry gap into the tunnel that followed, a tight passageway that required him to lower himself to his hands and knees, crawling forward through the damp darkness. He made his way forward for a while, but then the ground below him began to soften. Almost like quicksand, the boy's hands and feet were suddenly swallowed up by the surface below him, rendering him unable to move, trapped in the pitch-black darkness of the narrow tunnel. The panicked boy yelled for help, but his friends standing by in the large room just outside had no time to react before something extraordinary happened. Suddenly, the whole room was drenched with light from some unidentifiable source. And a voice cut through the cave. I'll get you out, it exclaimed. And just as it did, a powerful force grasped the boy's legs and began pulling him backwards. The sheer power with which the boy was pulled plunged his face into the surface below him, filling his nose and ears with mud and nearly suffocating him as he was dragged backwards out of the sticky trap and back into the hallway where his petrified friends had gathered to watch the situation unfold. The boy gasped and wiped mud from his face. He was filthy and terrified, but otherwise unharmed. The boys were all startled by the near-death experience, but there was one thing that frightened them far more than any near-death cave accident or disembodied voice could. Their parents' wrath if they were to ever find out what had happened. And so, the boys agreed to remain silent. The presence in the cave, however, had other plans. That evening, the boys' families had gathered at one of their homes for a neighborhood dinner. As it turns out, they were also joined by an unseen visitor, the spirit from the cave. As the families were all joined together around the table, talking and eating delicious food, their merriment was suddenly interrupted by a disembodied voice, addressing the parents of the boy who had gotten stuck. It asked them if they had gotten the mud out of their son's ears yet. The boy's parents were confused, as they had been told nothing of the earlier event. They fixed their perplexed gaze on their son, and the voice, noting their apparent confusion, elaborated. It told them of their son's close call earlier that day, even going so far as to recommend that the boy's parents put him on a leash 
so that he could be rescued if it happened again. Now, you would think that this disembodied voice suddenly interrupting dinner to tattle on a group of boys having been in a cave that they weren't supposed to be in would be a rather strange and disturbing event for the families. Well, it wasn't, really. This disembodied voice was something that they had been contending with for quite a while. And while this particular instance was harmless enough, things were not always so civil between the spirit and the people of Robertson County, Tennessee. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello there, everyone. I am PJ, and you are listening to episode 27 of Simply Strange. Thanks for stopping by. I feel like I say this at the beginning of just about every episode, and I'm going to keep that proud tradition alive with this one. I'm excited about this episode. But I guess for a little bit of a different reason this time. About a year ago now, I moved to Tennessee, and this particular story is one that has been on my radar for as long as I've lived here. But I've been waiting to do the episode because the location in question happens to be in Adams, Tennessee, which is about 45 minutes from where I live. So obviously I wanted to go take a look for myself. You can do tours of the cave from the story that I just told and also of the property that I'm about to be talking about. And this month I finally got around to going. It was a lot of fun. It was really great insight into this week's story and definitely worth checking out if you live in or around Tennessee. Anyway, with that being said, I'm finally going to be doing this story. The story of the Bell Witch. In the early days of the United States, Tennessee was the Wild West. It was an unspoiled land covered in sprawling forests, fertile fields, and pure, winding rivers. But it was remote and wild, and not for the faint of heart. It took grit and determination to tame these faraway lands. But those who were willing to take on the challenge were rewarded with affordable and prosperous land. Among those willing to roll the dice and begin a new life in the West were John and Lucy Bell, as well as their gaggle of six children and family of slaves who were in their servitude. In 1804, in search of affordable land where the growing family could finally have some extra elbow room, the Bells left North Carolina for the untamed lands of Middle Tennessee, where John Bell purchased 220 acres, which he set about clearing to make way for a sprawling farm straddling the Red River. 
The Bell family were joined in the area by a handful of other similarly-minded families, forming a town that would come to be known as Adams, Tennessee. Over the next decade, the Bell family would lead simple, prosperous lives. Lucy would give birth to three more children, bringing the family to a total of nine kids. The Bells grew to be among the most successful families in town, and John Bell was well-respected all throughout Adams for his Christian devotion, integrity, hospitality, and insistence on never owing anyone any money. Everything was going well for the Bell family. That is, until 1817, when their lives began to take a turn for the strange. The family began to notice odd things around the farm. Strange animals began to appear, like a large black dog that was regularly seen on the road near the farm. And even a mysterious little girl playing in the forest along the Red River. The oddities began to escalate, soon manifesting themselves as strange knocking sounds on the front door and the outside walls of the Bell family home. These odd sights and sounds, however, were not overly worrisome to the family. John Bell was of the belief that the noises were simply a neighbor playing a prank, and he intended to catch the culprit one day. The Bells explained it away, and they moved on. But this was only the beginning, and things would soon become much stranger. As time went on, the noises and the knocking grew more invasive and aggressive. Before long, they were no longer restricted to the outside of the home. They snuck into the boys' room, and under the cover of night, the sounds would manifest, startling the sleeping children out of their slumber. First, the sounds were quieter and more subtle. They began as the soft scratching of rats, seemingly gnawing on the boys' bedposts. But as time went on, the sounds began to grow louder, more aggressive, and more sinister. The boys began to be awakened by bizarre, disembodied, choking noises. The sounds of chains slowly dragging across the floor, or of dogs viciously fighting, seemingly right at the foot of their beds. But when the startled boys would light a candle attempting to investigate the sounds, they would immediately cease, and the boys would be greeted by an empty bedroom, and no sign whatsoever as to the cause of their nameless disturbance. John and Lucy Bell's sons, however, were not the only ones suffering from the mysterious presence. In fact, Mr. Bell himself seemingly began to see the worst of it. Normally the picture of health, John was suddenly afflicted with a strange ailment. At seemingly random times, his tongue would stiffen, rendering him unable to eat. The condition lingered, and aided by the strange disembodied sounds, it tormented the Bell family for many months. However, perhaps fearing the community's reaction if he were to open up about the strange occurrences, for a long time, John Bell insisted on suffering in silence, hoping that the disturbances would stop on their own. But his hope was in vain. Months turned into a year, and still the Bell family's torment continued. The sounds never stopped, sheets were forcefully ripped off of beds in the dead of night, and furniture would mysteriously overturn. They could no longer endure the torment alone, and finally, in confidence, they told their close friend and neighbor, James Johnson. John explained the strange situation to James, elaborating on the sounds in and out of the house, as well as the sudden, unexplainable tongue stiffness that he was experiencing, and he insisted that James and his wife spend an evening at their home, in hopes 
that they could experience the bizarre manifestations and hopefully help the family to understand just what exactly was going on. And James agreed to do so. That evening, James Johnston and his wife arrived at the Bell family home. The parties exchanged pleasantries and soon prepared to retire for the evening. But before they did, in accordance to Mr. Johnston's tradition, they all gathered together for a brief family worship. As dim candlelight washed over the otherwise darkened room, the Bells and the Johnsons sang a hymn, followed by a prayer. A prayer that, given the circumstances, was particularly impassioned. Mr. Johnson appealed earnestly for the cause of the disturbance to be revealed, or removed. And then the lights were dimmed and everyone retired for the night. In the Johnson's bedroom, the unseen manifestation wasted no time in revealing itself. No sooner had Mr. and Mrs. Johnson laid down to sleep than pandemonium ensued. Noises ricocheted through the room, sending James flying into an upright position in bed. As he tried to assess the source of the racket, the bedsheets were ripped off of the bed around him, falling to the floor below. Mr. Johnson was startled and confused, but not panicked. He kept a level head and called out into the darkness, demanding for the disturbance to reveal itself, asking, in the name of the Lord, what or who are you? His commands, however, were returned with silence. No more knocking or scraping. The sheets remained attached to the bed and the furniture no longer rattled. Complete silence. For a while, anyway. Some hours later, after the Johnsons had recovered from the unsettling experience and drifted off to sleep, the demonstrations began again, every bit as vigorously as they had the first time. While James Johnson was unable to shine any light on the nature of the Bell family's tormentor, he did convince John that this was a very real threat. He believed that the source of the disturbances was an intelligent force and convinced John that he needed to make his struggles public so that it could be further investigated. John did exactly this, and from that moment on, a seemingly endless stream of investigators as well as curious onlookers would encounter the unusual visitor. The mysterious presence began to develop very rapidly, soon taking on a voice and an apparent fondness for religion and church. It became a nightly routine for the manifestation to begin reciting scripture around bedtime, each night reiterating Mr. Johnson's song and prayer from the night that he had spent at the Bell family home. While the spirit was generally troublesome and unruly, it seemed to take great delight in conversation about scripture, and was capable of reciting any Bible verse on command. Given the Spirit's newfound ability to speak, it now became possible to question it, rekindling the Bell family's hope that they might gain an understanding as to what exactly the Spirit was. But there was one little problem. The disembodied voice did not appear to be particularly honest, 
and its self-asserted origin stories had a tendency to change drastically. When first questioned, the spirit claimed to be that of a Native American, whose resting place had been disturbed. She asserted that her bones had been removed and scattered, and that she was looking for a missing tooth that had been lost beneath the Bell family home. And this claim, interestingly enough, just might have had some merit to it. Near the Bell family home, just above the cave that the children liked to explore, were the remnants of a Native American burial ground. Four years ago, a group of slaves working for John Bell had stumbled upon the small collection of burial mounds, but understanding the sacred nature of the graves, they worked around them. However, word of the discovery made its way around town, exciting the imagination of many of the local boys, one of whom was Corbin Hall. Corbin was convinced that the graves probably contained valuable Native American relics, and he convinced Drew Bell to accompany him to the gravesite where, together, the boys dug up one of the graves. They found nothing but bones, and the disappointed boys returned home. But they didn't leave completely empty-handed. Hall brought with him a skull that he had removed from a grave, and when they arrived at the house, he began carelessly playing with the skull, tossing it in the air and ultimately throwing it at a wall, causing a tooth to be rattled loose and subsequently fall through a crack in the floorboards never to be found again. So, was this the tooth that the mysterious spirit claimed to be searching for? While it certainly fits the story, unfortunately, the answer may not be quite so straightforward, as the voice was a little bit difficult to work with, and its story had a habit of changing. In another instance, when the voice was questioned, it claimed to be the spirit of an immigrant who had arrived in these lands with a large sum of money, treasure that they buried for safekeeping, but that they died before getting the opportunity to uncover it. And now, they had returned to reveal the location of the treasure. And the spirit did reveal a location, but when the location was exhumed, no treasure was found. Reverend James Bell was another who took it upon himself to question the spirit. One day, the reverend paid the Bell family a visit to their home, where it was usually a fair bet that the spirit could be stirred up and conversed with. Typically, when the Bell Witch was questioned about its history, or what it even was, the interrogator would be met with vague answers or lies, and would ultimately make no headway getting to the bottom of the mystery. But the spirit's treatment of Reverend Gunn was much different. When the Reverend asked the witch who it was, this time she responded, giving a straightforward answer. The spirit told Brother Gunn that it could not lie to a preacher, and the sickly sweet disembodied voice echoed through the room simply stating that she was Kate Batts, and that she would haunt John Bell for as long as he lived. Now, on some levels, this made sense. Kate Batts was an old neighbor of John's, and as it turns out, the two had a little bit of a tenuous relationship. Years ago, when Mrs. Batts had first moved to the area, she and John Bell had a dispute of some sort, with Mrs. Batts claiming that John had cheated her. And following this dispute, Kate Batts held a grudge for the rest of her life. She distanced herself from the Bells, and when she did encounter them, she was unpleasant and angry. She reportedly vowed to get even with John, and on her deathbed, she swore that she would haunt John Bell and his descendants. So, this claim fits that narrative. 
and many people were satisfied with this explanation. John Bell, however, was not. The dispute was so long ago that he had completely forgotten about it, and he believed that Kate Batts had too. Plus, he didn't even believe her to be capable of such a haunting. Nevertheless, despite John's doubts, from that moment on, the Bell Witch came to be known by the people of Robertson County as Kate. Bell Witch had an interesting tendency to fixate on particular people. Sometimes she would develop a certain fondness for an individual. Lucy Bell, for example, was lucky enough to find herself on Kate's good side. It claimed that Lucy was a good woman, and referred to her affectionately as Old Luce, even bringing her grapes and hazelnuts on an occasion where she was bedridden after falling ill. However, more often than not, the spirit's opinion of people leaned towards the opposite end of the spectrum. John Bell was consistently the victim of the witch's influence. He was perpetually sick, and the witch even declared on a number of occasions that she would one day kill him. Another who faced a similar focused attack by the Bell witch was John and Lucy's daughter, Betsy. Betsy was 12 years old when the strange events began, and her harassment continued for several years. By the time Betsy was 15, she had grown to be the center of attention for a number of parties. Her parents were devoted to her, and she was known around town as a very respectable young woman, witty and with a great sense of humor. She was well-educated, dignified, gentle, and also quite beautiful. She became very popular with many of the young men around town, one of whom was Joshua Gardner. Joshua and Betsy began seeing each other, and soon were in a very devoted relationship. Just as Betsy was well-regarded around town, so too was Joshua. He was handsome and kind, well-educated and personable. By most people's reckoning, he was an excellent match for young Betsy Bell. There was one, however, who did not seem to approve of the relationship. Kate. Almost nightly, Betsy would hear Kate's voice echoing through her bedroom, whispering, Please, Betsy Bell, don't have Joshua Gardner. Please, Betsy Bell, don't marry Joshua Gardner. And this was only the beginning. While the disapproving whispers were certainly unsettling to young Betsy, they were far from being the full extent of the actions that the Bell Witch would take to ensure that Betsy Bell and Joshua Gardner would not be together. Soon, the mysterious force began to subject Betsy to physical attacks, violently pulling at her hair, or closing off her throat and leaving her unable to breathe, often to the point of near suffocation. Betsy would experience sudden bouts of intense pain throughout her body, almost as if she was being pierced by hundreds of tiny needles. And on numerous occasions, her family looked on as an invisible hand slapped the young woman in the cheek. Those standing close enough could even feel the whoosh of the unseen hand cutting through the air, and hear an audible smack as it connected with her face, leaving a red mark on her cheek, 
as the air filled with Kate's maniacal laughter. Her family would often be awakened in the evening hours by the sounds of Betsy screaming as she suffered yet another assault from the Bell Witch. Day after day, Betsy Bell would be subjected to Kate's torment, yet she refused to end her relationship with Joshua Gardner, and instead remained ever hopeful that someday, somehow, the mysterious manifestation would be vanquished. Betsy Bell was not the only member of the Bell family who was subjected to physical suffering by the Bell Witch. Her suffering was equaled by that of her father. In fact, as time went on, Betsy's torment slowly began to fizzle out. But for every bit of improvement that she made, her father's situation became that much worse. Kate's vehement hatred towards him became stronger and stronger. She blasted him with streams of curses and threats nearly every second that he spent in his home, which, given his worsening illness, was often for long stretches of time. One day, in late 1820, John Bell and his young son Richard woke up early to spend the morning doing some chores around the farm. John had recently overcome a severe bout of the illness brought on by the witch and was eager to take advantage of his newfound stamina. It was a clear, crisp fall morning as the two made their way across the fields towards the hog pen when, suddenly, one of John's shoes was jerked off of his foot as if by some invisible force. By this point, occurrences like this were hardly unusual for the Bell family, so Richard assisted his father in putting his shoe back on, securing it tightly with a double knot, and then the two continued. But they didn't make it very far. Mere moments later, John's other shoe went flying off of his other foot. Richard again replaced it, and the two carried on. Their strange, tedious dance continued all the way to the hog pen, with John's shoes constantly flying off until they finally arrived at their destination. They checked the hogs, and then they moved on to complete some other tasks. However, John would ultimately be unable to do so. As soon as they left the pen, John's shoes again flew off of his feet, and again, Richard helped his father to put his shoes back on. But as the two continued on their way, John faced a new assailant. He gasped as an invisible hand slapped his face, sending the startled man stumbling backwards. In a bit of a daze, John slowly made his way to the side of the road, where he lowered himself to the ground and sat on a log to catch his breath. Kate's evil, cackling laughter filled the air around them. His son looked on as John's face grimaced and contorted in continuous pain, and his shoes again launched themselves off of his feet. And then, just as suddenly as it had began, it all stopped. John's tense, agonized face loosened slightly, and tears rolled down his cheeks as he spoke to Richard, telling him that soon he would no longer have a father that the witch's torture was killing him slowly, and that he could not survive its persecution for much longer. 
John was right. Only days later, on the morning of December 19, 1820, John did not wake up. Lucy instead woke up to find her husband in a coma-like state, breathing but unresponsive. The disembodied voice of Kate claimed to have poisoned him in the night. A doctor was called in to try to revive the unfortunate man, but to no avail. And the next morning, John Bell passed away. After John's passing, Kate went away, but not before claiming that she would return in seven years. Since then, the mystery of the Bell Witch has become a distant memory, and the truth behind Kate, the mysterious voice that led to John Bell's demise, will likely never be known for sure. Some people assert that John Bell and his son, Drew, had learned ventriloquism and had been fooling their neighbors throughout the entire ordeal. Yet others believed that there was something more sinister at foot, a disturbed Native American spirit, perhaps, searching for its lost tooth. Or maybe the vengeful spirit of Kate Batts, haunting, even torturing John Bell as punishment for taking advantage of her in a land transaction. Yet others believe that it was a demon. As promised, the Bell Witch did briefly return to disturb Lucy Bell seven years later. And for many years to come, strange things were reported around the Bell family farm, but never quite like the strange and terrifying events lasting from 1817 to John Bell's death in 1820. Alright everyone, that is a wrap for this week's episode. I hope you all enjoyed. If you'd like to learn more about this story, I would definitely recommend checking out An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch by M.V. Ingram. It was kind of the main source that I used for this episode. It was a really interesting read and it gives a nice straightforward overview of what happened at the Bell family farm. And you can get it on Kindle for like a dollar, so why not? As always, be sure to follow Simply Strange on social media for updates on what's going on. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, I've got coffee mugs and t-shirts over at simplystrangepodcast.com slash merch. And you can also become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash simplystrange. Those are both fantastic ways to help keep the lights on over here. And every penny I make on both of those, as well as a lot more, gets reinvested right back into the show. So any help is really, really appreciated. And thank you so much to everyone who is already a supporter. And I think that's everything. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. And Simply Strange will be back next month with another spooky story for you. I hope you all have lovely days, or nights, or afternoons, or just whatever. Just have a good time. Enjoy enjoy life. Life is too short to not enjoy it, you know? So just get out there and enjoy it.